I've called the study Escape from Laodicea. Um, the church is entering is entering into, and I say the church universal, the church is entering into an interesting phase. Uh, and the term interesting is used tongue-in-cheek. You know, the old Arab curse was, may your children live in interesting times. Um, so for the church, these are interesting times. There's... Um, there's a, maybe albeit unconscious, I don't know, there's a, there's a movement afoot that um, is, in my view, something that might be very fragile. And I think that, uh, I think that uh, churches today need to have an understanding of what the Bible says about the church. Um, in systematic theology, ecclesiology is the doctrine of the church. I happen to be, um, I guess you would say, a progressive dispensationalist. I believe that the time of the church started on the day of Pentecost and I believe that it comes to an end with the rapture and resurrection of, of saints uh, that would precede the tribulation. That's my view. And I've, I didn't start out that way, but a lot of Bible study has convinced me that this is the way that uh, if you take the Bible literally and don't play around with its words and don't try to be figurative in things. This is the literal way to look at it. In the Revelation, there are seven letters to seven churches. The seventh of those churches, the last of the seven, is the church at Laodicea. There's a, there's a theological persuasion that the seven churches, since the Revelation calls itself a book of prophecy, um, there is a theological persuasion that the seven churches are representative of seven historical eras in the church time, in the church age. Uh, that the church at Ephesus, the first one was the apostolic church, and moving on through the seventh and the last historical era of the church is represented by Laodicea. The longer I go in reflection and study, the more I tend to agree that, that uh, it, 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 there's a strong case to be made that these seven churches represent the seven eras of the church, the seven historical times of the church. Now, it's not to say that today there's a representative of each of the seven churches in the world. I'm sure that's true. Um, but it is to say that generally speaking, if you think of the church, uh, the church has gone now for 2,000 years, and that's, uh, okay, that's 200 or 300 years if you just, I'm not saying that each age is equal in its length, 
in its time, length of time. But generally, you know, 300 years. And you can look back, and I have seen the argument how the history of the church was paralleled with what was being said to a specific church. And these, these letters are from the Lord Jesus Christ, you know. He is examining those churches. He is seen uh, in a room where there's seven lampstands and he's walking in and around among those lampstands. He's examining them. Uh, even threatens to remove one of them from the room. When you get to Laodicea in the seven churches, you get to the worst of the bunch. And we're going to see that right now, but we're going to, and we're going to pay very close attention uh, to the language, to, to, the, to, the, to the words that are used in the original text. But if indeed the sixth of the seven churches, the Philadelphian age, is seen as the church of powerful worldwide missions. The Lord said, I place before you an open door, no man can shut it. I open doors, no man can shut. I close doors, no man can open. And uh, he has nothing bad to say about the church at Philadelphia, which is the church that precedes Laodicea. But he also... He, I, I don't know how to turn my volume down since I've got it on here, so I'm getting messages. Just, It sounds like a doorbell. Don't pay any attention to it. Um, but he makes this promise to the Philadelphian church. He said, because you have kept my word, you have guarded my word, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is about to come on all the earth. Now, to me, that's the rapture of the church. Philadelphia then, like the others preceding, Philadelphia melts into Laodicea. So before the true church is taken away, those who are alive, of course the rapture of the church is only applicable to one generation of believers, right? All the others will have died before then. Um, but melting right in from there the church goes into Laodicea. And when I say escape from Laodicea, I say that every Christian and every church needs to be aware of what the Bible says of, the, of what will be the prevalent, um, the prevalent direction the growing, prevalent, prevailing direction of the so-called church at the close of the age of the church. The church, I used, to, I used to have a sermon that I preached. I called it the rupture of the church rather than rapture. Before it raptures, it ruptures. The bad things happen in the church, just like in Israel. Um, and Laodicea, if we accept the persuasion that these are seven historical eras and that Laodicea is the seventh, the last of it, then you have a glimpse of what, of what the church is like as the church days come to a, a close. Um, even if you don't accept the persuasion that these are seven historical ages, 
the fact still remains that Laodicea is a bad church and you do not want to be a part of this kind of church. And we'll see why when we study what the Lord said regarding Laodicea. So let's start, first of all, with the name Laodicea. It's, from, uh, it's, it's a Greek compound word, uh, Laodicea. Uh, it means the power of the people or the rights of the people. The rights of the people. I, listen, I was, and I could not have imagined, I couldn't make this up. I had to read it. Somebody else had to write about it. I saw this guy, a picture of him, and uh, he identifies as a mermaid. Now, I'm not kidding you. This guy apparently is serious. And he, he talked like that he just despised his legs, that he was really a mermaid. And they had a picture of him with some kind of flipper thing on. And he was, did anybody see that? It was on Facebook. Uh, and he was kind of a, uh, he just was an ugly man. He just looked ugly, you know. <laughs> Maybe ugly with a long U. Ugly. Um, he, he just, he just as, as one guy said, he's so ugly he'd draw a blister on a brick wall if he looked at it. Um, and I'm one to talk, uh, but uh, I'm thinking, who cares if this guy thinks he's a mermaid? Who, 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 why am I reading? Why, why is this on here? Right? Here's why. Because a growing mindset is this guy has the personal right to do, say, or be whatever he can imagine. So it now, you know, of course it goes into transgenderism and all these other things that are, that are, and it's going to, you know, it's already coming back to haunt humanity because these guys that identify as girls are winning all the gold medals in female competition. And the, the feminist side is getting mad about it, you know. This ain't fair. This ain't right. Well, you know, my daddy used to talk about people. He'd say, well, you give him enough rope, he'll hang yourself. Well, that's kind of how these prevailing thoughts are. But what I'm saying is we have never lived. Humanity, I can't speak for the pre-flood world, okay? But not even in the worst days of Rome did people identify themselves as the other sex or as an animal or something other than what they were. Uh, and if you, if you correct them, rebuke them, uh, come against them, or even call them silly. The elitists who somehow hold these authoritative positions so that they can be condescending to people who have common sense, they will scold you, and then they will ostracize, they will call you out, and you're something that is subhuman. If you can't accept that this person has the right to call himself half a fish if he wants to. <laughs> or, or this guy has the right to call himself a woman and then just blow away the female competition 
on whatever. It's I've, the two I've seen are wrestling and weightlifting. Um, there was something on the TV this morning about some woman or some guy that was in racing on, on track. Yeah, track. Was, well, you know. Well, good for them. <laughs> They're going to be, Laodicea is going to be mad at them. The name, in my view, names, you know, you don't, okay, except for Ephesus, you don't see anything about these other churches, these seven churches, except for Ephesus. They may be mentioned briefly, but, you know, Thyatira and all this. You don't see that. There's a reason why the Holy Spirit of God, why Jesus Christ Selected these particular churches because what he says to them is meaningful. It's very meaningful. Uh, and that, that the one whose name is Laodicea is used, uh, to me, is interesting. You go back, I mean, the name of a place was very significant, especially in the Old Testament. They would rename a place when God did something significant there. Uh, that's so, you know, there's a reason for that. Uh, and I think we have to pay attention to every letter and every word that's in the Bible because he says at the end of all the seven letters, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay? I don't want to identify with Laodicea. You're going to see why when we go through it. I don't think that you want to identify with it. But we live in a time, I have so much to say, and there's, it's kind of hard for me to condense all of this. And it's, it's, it's not out of frustration, it's out of deep concern for people, even people that I know, where where people flippantly select or choose or whatever the place where the Great Commission says they are to be disciples. That's a learner. You have to learn. And then from there you have to grow into a discipler, one who disciples others. Go into all the world. Uh, disciple. It's a, it's a command. It's an imperative. Uh, disciple. And so... I, I, I observe things these days. I, when I came up and, I, and, and the peers, my, my, not just me, but peers of mine, uh, we, 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 we painstakingly try to be as deep in the Scriptures as possible, honestly believing that the Lord gave it the way that He saw fit in the Old Testament Hebrew and the New Testament in Greek. Young preachers in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, young preachers, by the time they were 17 years old, were already fluent in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. And I'm talking about British back in the time of England, Great Britain. Uh, they, there, there were no seminaries. They would, they would be, they would intern, I guess you say, would say, with a seasoned pastor. And that seasoned pastor uh, would, would teach them uh, the, the doctrines of Christianity, the importance of Bible study, and, and, uh, and all. And, and they invested their lives 
into this, uh, into this study of the Word. So what you have then, growing through the, well, the time of, I guess you might say, the early on into the latter part of the Philadelphian age, if you want to look at it that way. You had a, a strong-minded people who guarded the Word of God, and they just didn't put up with any foolishness in church, especially false doctrine. Um, and, and uh, of course, the Lord talks about uh, disciplining people who are in error. They're wrong. You, you, we don't, you know, you don't, you don't get a crown for participation. Uh, you get a crown for being born again and being saved, right? Uh, so we have to be careful to identify who we are according to the Word of God at Shiloh or any church to identify. And, you know, we have these biblical parameters around our spiritual existence on planet Earth as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we understand that we have mandates, we have instructions. The epistles are written to encourage and to correct. First Corinthians was written because there was a problem. There was something wrong there. Uh, I mean, you go from that. Philippians had had a couple of women fussing with each other, um, and and uh, uh, Thessalonians they were worried that they had missed out on the rapture, and that that Paul had already written that the Lord had come, and he said, "I didn't write that," you know. Uh, I mean, I could go on. The Galatians they were falling back into Judaism. Somebody taught them that they had to they had to become Jews before they could become Christians. So, you know, there were problems in these, and the Holy Spirit raises up the apostles and they, they correct the problems. And you and I have the privilege of the completed canon of Scripture so that we can learn from all this. We know what the boundaries are. We know what Christianity is. We understand the, the doctrine of the apostles. We're taught in the book of Acts that they continued steadfastly in the doctrine of the apostles. Well, that's the teaching of the apostles. That's the New Testament. That's what that is. That's, that's no mystery. It's the teaching of the New Testament. So our, our great burden is to teach the Bible and to encourage people to be learners of the Bible and then be applying what they learn to their lives and expect that this is lived out in, in the church where they, where they attend. So much of what you see these days in church is just foreign uh, to, to, to the New Testament. I'm, I'm not on a bandwagon. And I, if, if Jesus Christ is proclaimed from a sincere heart, bless God in heaven. And, I, and I'm not on this thing about worship style or anything else. My problem is um, when, when pastors or churches or whatever seek to be like the world in order to bring the world in and decide that, hey, you know, we, we want to be five miles wide even if we ain't but half an inch deep. That, 
that does not serve in the long run uh, to stand the test of time. And we've, you know, I have pastor friends who struggle with this. We've, we've probably experienced it at, at, uh, at our church where, where uh, people are, are being um, attracted to things that attracts the world. You understand what I'm saying? Um, and, hey, I like to have fun as much as anybody else. But when it comes to worship and discipleship and Bible study and Bible teaching, uh, there's, a, there's a line that's to be drawn there um, that, 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 you cannot, that you cannot cross. And I'll tell you something from personal experience. It will cost you friendships. It, it will cost you, it'll, it'll cost you in, in a painful way uh, in, in the world where we live. If you think about this, and I've pondered on this and I've spoken to other, especially I'm on a couple of groups online with uh, closed groups and we, we bounce around these things. And one thing that's noted, okay, I'm, I'm not, I don't, uh, the, 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 the term denominationalism doesn't really mean anything to me. Denominationalism is a man-made thing, and I understand that. Uh, but having said that, within an organized structure of the church, there is, according to Scripture, accountability. Um, and you would expect that people, that men in the church would hold me accountable if, if I strayed into a certain area, uh, whether it be personally or even doctrinally or, or biblically. Um, but these, these churches that keep popping up all the time, and I, I praise God for churches that are planted, that, that are doing a great thing for God. But that said, I've also observed that in so many of them, there is no accountability. They can just about say anything they want to say. They can just about do anything they want to do and present anything that they want to present uh, from, from within the walls or confines of, of where their place of, of worship is. And, and it, it's just incorrect. Um, I, don't, I don't want to get too specific here, but I, I've, been, I've observed some things just in the last couple of weeks where you know, the, 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 the guy, the super cool guy, and that's fine. Who, who doesn't want to be super cool, right? Um, but he has this lingo and he has this way of doing his, of his hands and all. And then he makes these, these statements that are blatantly erroneous. And he bases his message on that, right? Um, he, picks, he picks a text here or half a text there. Um, and you have people here who have been primed by whatever went before, and they are primed to, to take all of this in. There's a thing these days called uh, revisionist theology that's very troubling. 
that many modern churches have adopted. And it is this, especially with regard to the writings of the Apostle Paul and, of course, the Old Testament, but more specifically the writings of the Apostle Paul, where the Apostle Paul uh, defines the rules of marriage. He defines the roles of husbands and wives. He defines uh, men and women. Okay? All right. So there it is. And revisionist theology purports that Paul had to say those things for his day because of the culture that existed in his day. But you cannot teach that in today's culture because the women today are not like the women then. The men today are not like the men then. And marriage is not, is not the thing like it was then where the woman was the possession of the man, all that kind of stuff. Uh, so revisionist theology is, you know, we will cherry pick what we want. Uh, and, and we will just defy the rest of it. We won't even teach it. We won't even go there. So what happens is then people who really are leading unrepentant lives, they've, they, they're not repentant. They're, they live in open sin. I mean, look at the churches that adopt sexually perverted people into their, into their numbers. Uh, there's a big fight among a major denomination right now that's about to split over that very issue. And it all starts because somebody just won't say, you know what, here's what the Bible says. We're just going to stand on the Bible, which is what the church had done for so long. But in these days in which we live, we find that in a, in a growing fashion, the foundation is, is crumbling in a, in a lot of ways. And we cannot, we, we cannot allow ourselves and our church to be compromised in any way. We're not mean. What is, what's meanness? You know, I think I mentioned it within the last couple of weeks, how Paul and Jesus in the Revelation, both, Paul gives three lists, Jesus gives at least one, and at the end of the Revelation, of the people who are disqualified from the kingdom of heaven. They will not inherit it. And so... This, this litany of people, this, these particular groups of people are listed. Paul goes on and says to the Corinthians, specifically he said, he said, you know, or maybe it's the Colossians, he says, y'all were like this at one time, but you're not like this anymore. You know, you've been saved by grace and born again. Um, that, that list of, of disqualifying behavioral lifestyle slash characteristics of, of an unrepentant, blatantly, openly sinful life that the Bible says disqualifies you from the kingdom of heaven is in so many ways readily accepted by so much of the church today. And it's ruinous. It's, 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 it's utterly uh, 
ruinous. The Bible says that judgment begins at the house of God. Um, so what are we going to do if these, there's a, if, if, if we're in the last days of the church, I'm, I think we'll, we can draw some conclusions when we get through this study Sunday, tomorrow morning, no, Sunday morning, Sunday morning whatever today is, I don't know. <laughs> um, we'll just let the Bible say what it's going to say. We'll just, that's, this is what the Bible says. Um, and, and we can draw our own conclusions from the scriptures themselves. Now, one thing about Laodicea, the first thing that flies into the face of anybody who looks at it is the meaning of the name, the rights of the people. Let me tell you, and I, I, I may have mentioned this earlier as well, but the, the sovereign, the, the, the gospel of the kingdom is the acknowledgement of, a, of the sovereign God. In other words, God is sovereign. We have no rights unless God grants them. We are not free unless we are free in Christ. There, otherwise, we're in bondage. We're enslaved to sin. Um, so we can't boast of who we are or what we are. We have to let God define for us what we are. So the admonition that I have for the church in these days is if you look around and you think that you're, that you're at the loudest sea in Baptist church, you need to run. Run away. Escape from it the best way you can. All right? With that in mind, we're in Revelation 3, 14 through 22, and I have the thing uh, copied out for all the slides. Christ condemns the church. Can you think about that? Christ condemning a church? Well, let's look at it. And to the messenger, all right, let me stop there. Uh, Katangelo, you see that? That is most often translated angel, but it literally means messenger. So, it is, it's foreign to New Testament teaching to say that each church has as its spiritual leader an angel, you know, like Gabriel or something. That's, that's foreign. So you have to take the word literally, and uh, I can go deeper into it and let the revelation stand for itself on that interpretation but I, I want to get through this thing. So the messenger of the church in Laodicea or the messenger of any of those seven churches was the person who brought the message. He was entrusted with the message. To the messenger of the church in Laodicea write, these things says. Now Christ identifies himself in three ways. If you study the seven churches, you will see that uh, Christ identifies himself respectively to each church according to how the church needs him. He doesn't identify himself the same way in each church. Here, he identifies himself in these three ways. Number one, these things says, number one, the amen. Now that's, a, uh, that's actually a Hebrew word. It's used here in the in the um, 
New Testament. Amen means of a truth. I think in the King James it's most often uh, translated verily. Verily, verily, I say to you. Amen, amen. It means this is it. This is the truth. This is foundational. So he identifies himself, first of all, as foundational truth. Secondly, he identifies himself as the faithful and true witness. His word is not false. His testimony to the human race is not false, which is namely, we are a fallen race and we're in need of a Savior. Everything that's about Christ, He is the faithful and true witness. And number three, He is the origin of the creation of God. Now if you see the the, the Greek word arche, arche, origin. He is the beginner. He is the beginner of creation. In other words, he's creator. All right? He is the origin of creation, uh, of the creation of God. Okay, so now the third thing is the time space continuum in which you live was created. A creator created everything. So now the doctrine of creation, the church at Laodicea apparently did not see Christ as foundational truth. Number two, did not accept him as a faithful and true witness. And number three, denied that God is the creator. I know your works that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you would be hot or cold. So because you're neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you, regurgitate you, vomit you out of my mouth. Let's talk about hot and cold. You know, somebody look at that, and if you don't really think about it, you say, well, why in the world would Jesus want Christians to be cold? It's because we have this, we, we have this thing that we've been brought up, you know, oh, he's on fire for God, you know, or he is as cold, he is cold-hearted. Well, that sounds... To say that you're hot sounds good and to say that you're cold sounds bad, right? You got to think about it. Within just a very short distance from Laodicea, there were two big cities. Now, Laodicea was a major banking center. They had a lot of money. If, if, you, if you participated in any, in any kind of industry or whatever, you had to go through Laodicea to get your money. And then you paid interest. So they, they had their fingers in everything in Laodicea. So they're very wealthy. But they also lived in, a, in an interesting setting. Just a few miles in one direction was Hierapolis. Hierapolis was a city known for its hot springs. And the hot springs were filled with a, a particular kind of mineral where people would go and they would ease down into those hot springs and their bodies would begin to heal. And I mean, like arthritic or whatever. It was a healing thing for them. So it was very, very popular in its day for its mineral hot springs. 
So to say to the Laodiceans, I wish you were hot, is to say, I wish, I, 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 I wish that you were healing. I, I wish that you could provide for people that would help them. Or that you were cold. Now, just a little bit over in the other direction um, was Colossae, the letter to the Colossians. Colossae was known for having some of the best water in the world. It was cold and sweet. So one could not think of a better, sweeter, more refreshing drink of water than to get a drink of water at Colossae. So you see what the Lord is saying to Laodicea. I wish that you were active in people's lives so that you could strengthen them and energize them and, and, and heal them or that you would be the refreshing drink of water that these people need. They're so thirsty and famished. But you're neither of those. You're lukewarm. Literally by the time through the aqueducts and the pipes the water got from the water source to... Uh, Laodicea, it was a tepid, uh, mineral-filled water. It was nauseating to drink. Uh, the, the pipes where the water came into Laodicea have, have been unearthed and discovered, and they were just caked with this particular kind of mineral. So this, this, this water traveling into uh, Laodicea from its source wasn't cold, it wasn't hot, and it was also full of minerals that, uh, that, that made the, the water taste awful. Anybody ever been around a well or something that just tasted like iron? My, yeah. Mm -hmm. my, my, my grandmother had water like that, uh, and it was just awful. It was just <laughs> awful. That's why my growth is stunted. Uh, <laughs> um, that's what made my hair fall out. <laughs> um, so the Lord, the Lord says, if you could just be one way or the other, but you're meaningless. You're nauseating. You have no meaning at all, and I am about to regurgitate you. That's what he says to them. So now on down in verse, what, 17... For you say, I am rich, and I have grown rich, and I have need of nothing. Now that was the pride of the Laodiceans. In, in the great earthquake of 60 A.D., an earthquake literally... Now this was a great city in its day, Laodicea. This earthquake leveled that city. Well, because it was such an important banking center, the imperium, the, the, the Roman emperor and, and the powers that be in government wanted to rush in with aid to quickly rebuild that city so that the economy wouldn't suffer. But the Laodiceans were so proud and so, so wealthy and had such a feeling of self-sufficiency, they rejected Rome's help. And they rebuilt it themselves. Anybody in Laodicea who would have been reading this letter would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about. You don't think you need anything, and do you not realize that you're calloused or, or afflicted? You're miserable and poor and blind and naked. Laodicea was also known 
for a particular industry of wool that was rich, glossy, black wool. Very unusual, very desirable. There was a particular type of turban that was made in that area out of this wool that was very expensive and only the rich guys in the world could buy that kind of turban and wear it. It was just, it really just spoke for itself. And they made carpets out of it and they, make, they made garments out of it and they shipped it around all over the place. And it was the most desirable type of clothing anywhere in the world. And so they, they, they proudly clothed themselves as a very wealthy society in this rich, black, beautiful, glossy wool and the way that they could weave it and put it together. And Christ says, you're naked. You don't have anything on. You're not independent. You're afflicted. You're not rich. You're poor. Another thing that Laodicea was known for was the particular medical school there that made a particular kind of eye salve. People came from around the world and they also exported this eye salve that was very in particular kinds of, of eye disease in that day, this salve was very effective. And the people would apply the eye salve to their eyes and people came there so they could see. Christ says, you're blind. So here is how Christ calls to Laodicea. I counsel you to buy gold from me. Now these guys were selling gold. You know, they dealt in money. Buy from me gold refined by fire. Now, that word to be refined by fire, that phrase to be refined by fire, spoke of the process where gold and gold ore would be subjected to high, high degree of fire. And the fire, the, the gold was heavier and easily melted. So the gold would separate itself from the rest of the stuff in the ore and the ore would be at the top and the pure gold would be at the bottom. And the dross, the stuff at the top, would be, would be thrown away. And the only way that Laodiceans could have the best gold, the purest gold, was to subject it to fire. And here's what Christ says. He says, I want you to buy gold from me, refined by fire, so that you can be rich. I want you to have... I want you to buy white garments from me so that you can be clothed and the shame of your nakedness might not be made visible. I want you to get this gold and then buy from me eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you can see. You're not visionaries. You're not seeing. You don't understand. You're miserable. You're poor. You're blind and you're naked. As many as I might love, I rebuke and discipline. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. So this is, this is the call of Christ to Laodicea. Go on now and go to verse 20. And this is what is so sad. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Christ is on the outside of this church. This church calls itself a church, but they are not... They are not built 
on Christ. The church doesn't have any reason for existence other than the fact that God has caused us to be born again, has awakened us to our pitiful, depraved condition, has given to us the gift of repentance, whereby we repented and has given to us the gift of faith, whereby we may believe, and God Himself brings us out of spiritual deadness and causes us to be born again into life. And that whole thing means something because Christ paid for it with His life. The only begotten Son of God. Now this is everything about us is based on Christ and everything that Christ has done. Here, He's not even on the inside of the church. I stand at the door and knock. If anybody in there should hear my voice and open the door, then I'll come into him and will dine with him and he with me. The one overcoming or the one victorious, I will give to him to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So, Christ gives to us a picture of the problem of the prevailing condition of what I believe is the last historical era of the church. Obviously, one will exist at the same time of the other, but as one, as one era gives way to the other, the former era begins to diminish and the new era begins to grow more strongly. Um, that's, that's, that's my view. That's, that's how I see it. So Christ says then in verse 22, the one having an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, we begin to sense what the Laodicean problem is. Whether you apply it to, the, to a final historical era of the age of the church or not, you still cannot deny that this is a spiritual condition which is not acceptable to Jesus. This is not acceptable to Christ. He even says, I will throw you up. I will vomit you out of my mouth. Uh, Christ, Christ can't take the Laodicean church. And he uses very graphic and strong language to explain how Laodicea cannot coexist with the blessed Lord Jesus Christ. But then he, then he explains, this is what you have to do. So we lay the foundation of our study here tonight um, considering the Laodicean church we're going to see as we go on from here, and I'm going to stop right here tonight. This is where we'll pick up, God willing, in the morning. The eschatologies of the church. Now, let me talk about that briefly. Eschatology, you know what that is. That's the doctrine of last things. In systematic theology, you have uh, bibliology, the doctrine of the Bible, doctrine of Scripture. 
Theology proper, the doctrine of God the Father. Christology, the doctrine of the Christ or the doctrine of the Son. Pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Um, Homardiology, the doctrine of sin. Soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. Uh, angelology, the doctrine of angels. Ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. And on anthropology, the doctrine of man. And then you have eschatology, the doctrine of last things. Now, that's a very broad category. It includes, for example, physical death, the, the doctrine of last things in physical life. It includes that. When you study the New Testament carefully, you will find in the Revelation, for example, if you believe like I do, after the Revelation chapter 3, the term church is not used anymore in the Revelation. You won't find it again. From the Revelation chapter 4 and verse 1 to the Revelation chapter 22 and verse 21, from 4 verse 1 to the end of the book, you won't find the word church anymore because the church ain't there. Okay? He says in the Revelation, what, uh, 119, when he gives the outline of the Revelation, Jesus says, write the things you see the things which are, and the things which must be after these things. So he wrote down in the Revelation chapter 1 what he saw, which was the glorified Christ. The church had never been really taught what God the Son looks like in His wonderful glory. So there he is, hair like wool, eyes like fire, feet like brass, glows brighter than the sun, has this has this belt on that shines brightly on this magnificent throne, has a, an emerald rainbow that goes all the way around it, and the, the four, the, the, the Zoe, the, 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 the cherubim collapse in his presence, and then they lift up his Merkaba throne, and there's this, there's this crystal glassy sea, and all this kind of stuff. Nobody had ever been taught that until the last of the living apostles. And so, Write what you see. This is who I am. So the people say, oh my, this is, this is God. Then the things which are, chapters 2 and 3 are the seven churches. They are. And then the things that shall be after these things. Metatata, that's the after these things. That's the phrase in the Greek. So metatata, you go from that in verse 19 to Revelation 1 over to the Revelation 4 verse 1. What's the first word, first phrase that you see? Metatata. So that begins... The section that is what is after these things, metatata. All right, so the word church is not used anymore after that. Now, the things that you see in the Revelation after chapter 4, in my view, are the unfolding of the 70th week of Daniel, the 70th Shabbat, the 70th Heptad, the 70th seven-year period. Daniel is very clear that the first 69 will move right on congruently, but there's a separation between the 69th and the 70th. It was a mystery until you get to the New Testament, you realize that this is the church. But then when the church is removed, now the 70th seven-year period for Israel, because the angel said to Daniel, write the things that must happen to your people, Israel. So you see those, those, those seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls of wrath? That's the 70th seven-year period of God's dealing with Israel. That's not the church, all right? So 
there is an eschatology, and we talk a lot about things that are going to happen. The prophets say this. And 99% of those things apply to Israel in the 70th, seven-year period. But there is an eschatology of the church, and it's identified primarily in First and Second Thessalonians and in First and Second Timothy. Uh, and we're taught then by the Apostle Paul what the church will be like at the closing of its age. So the church has an eschatology that is peculiar to itself, that is exclusive of the eschatology that applies to Israel. Okay, you got that? So we're going to look, God willing, tomorrow and then for the rest of our time, we're going to begin to look and see what is the eschatology of the church. And we will then be taught and forewarned by the Bible itself of what not to do, of, of what to avoid, what to stay away from. Uh, the Apostle Paul even says to Timothy, and we'll look at that tomorrow, stay away from these people. Don't do this. That's what he says to him. Uh, so we want to take that, uh, the eschatology of the church, and then finally on Sunday we'll draw, God willing, we'll draw some conclusions about who we are and what we want for the Lord to do with us and through us uh, in our time in which we live and in the place where we try to serve the Lord. Okay? All right. Well, we're going to be through with this, uh, with this first session. And um, let's pray. Holy Father God, we honor you and glorify you. We marvel at your word. Oh, Lord, we want to be sensitive and obedient, especially in these days in which we live. Bless us and help us as we study your word and come before you that these things might be applied to our lives. They might become part of our existence as we seek to work for you in this life. In Jesus' name, amen.